I'm Randy, the pastor half of the podcast, and my friend Kyle is a philosopher. This podcast hosts conversations at the intersection of philosophy, theology, and spirituality. We also invite experts to join us, making public a space that we've often enjoyed off-air around the proverbial table with a good drink in the back corner of a dark pub. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar. In our last episode, we talked about something super weighty, and that is the problem of evil. And it's something that, as a philosophy and pastoral theological podcast, we have to talk about. We can't get around. And really, as people who are maybe spiritual, maybe religious people, we should talk about this as well. We shouldn't try to get around this. We shouldn't ignore it. We should actually just have this conversation. And so we began that in our last episode, and I really enjoyed it. I really appreciated you guiding us through that conversation, Kyle, and framing it historically and philosophically. Mm-hmm. And today we might get a little bit more personal. We're also yeah. going to go down a little bit more of what are some of the what are some of the theories and theodicies that are out there and why they may or may not work. Yeah, and really kind of try to emphasize this time uh, where it all comes back to, at least for me. Um, you know, what at the end of the day, uh, can I do as a religious person about this, yes. <laughs> which, what should my decision be? Um, yeah. And there's not going to be any clear answers. So fair warning. We're going to try at least to frame the conversation in a way that's helpful. Yeah. And let me just say pastorally that I hope this conversation doesn't short circuit someone's spirituality in the moment to where like, well, shit, I can't believe this, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. What I hope this does is inform a longer and larger conversation, both inwardly and then corporately, collectively. This is what the church is for, is to have these conversations. And this is what, you know, relationships are like. I hope this just is a as a piece in your process, spiritually, philosophically, just in trying to figure out what is what is humanity and what is the world and what is reality, all of that. We don't we don't advocate for this being kind of a spark that just changes someone someone's belief right. in a moment, right? Right. No, we're not trying to <laughs> deconvert anybody. I mean, yeah, no, these are things you have to wrestle with for a long time. And, like years. Yeah. And uh, you may come out in a, a happy place that you expected and you might not. Uh, yeah. But I think honesty is better than self-deception. Yeah, and, and that's, so. that's part of what I'm trying to say is we've gotten emails from people that said like, this thing just made a left turn and I, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't know what to do with this episode. We've heard that about a couple of episodes. Mm -hmm. These are probably going to be a couple of those episodes, but at the same time, I hope this is a healthy endeavor where we can think honestly about our faith. We're not pretending, we're not trying to believe something just because it feels fun to believe, but we're actually taking our faith seriously, or a lack of faith at this, you know, whatever, wherever you find yourself in the faith spectrum or the spirituality spectrum, we just hope this helps you take it a little bit more seriously and um, brings up some really good conversations to have. Yeah, Yeah, good. And, you know, I have to be frank, a lot of people have deconverted as a result of this problem, and there's no getting around that fact, and I don't think those people are unreasonable, but but we haven't. (laughs) I haven't. Um, And so try to motivate. Why that is. And it's a spectrum, right? You you haven't in a way that is different than yes. why I haven't. Exactly. And we're going to go into that a little bit today. Yeah. Okay, so I think we left off talking about, we were talking about a bunch of different types of theodicy, which again is just a way of responding to the problem of evil, trying to explain how a good, powerful, uh, intelligent God could allow evil or could be compatible with this much of it. 
this mm-hmm. kind of evil that we see around us. Um, and there's lots of ways to try to explain that. We went through several of them last time. Um, there's some that are, I wouldn't even call them theodicies. They're interesting responses to the problem that aren't quite doing the same thing that the other theodicies are doing. So I said before, the kind of common thread of almost all theodicies, maybe all of them, is this idea of a greater good, that in some way there's going to be, whether it's at the end of time, you know, we're in heaven, we're looking back, um, at the end of the evolutionary trajectory of our species, whatever, there's some sense in which God allows evil in order to bring about something better, something really good good and beautiful in the end, and we just need the right perspective to understand that, and we don't have that perspective. Um, I think that's kind of compelling. I mean, it's the core of, as I said, all all theodicies. Yeah. Um, that's what free will is about. That's what the soul building thing was about. It's what a bunch of them are about. But there's a couple that are different than that. That's not. They don't really try to do that. Uh, we just talked to a person who advocates a response to the problem of evil. Actually, a couple of them um, that don't really do that. So Thomas J. Ord, for example, um, as I read him anyway, he's not really doing that. He's saying we. Let's go all the way back to the beginning of the conversation where we defined what God was, mm-hmm. and let's rethink that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let's say God doesn't have the, all those attributes that created the problem in the first place. Um, so, you know, remember we said God is a title, and that title includes certain features, and among those features are, critically, that God has all the power that is needed to stop evil, that God has all the knowledge that is needed, and that God wants to do so. In other words, God is good. Uh, Tom's response to that is the first one is mistaken. Mm-hmm. God, in fact, does not have the power to stop evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and that changes the whole ballgame. <laughs> it's not trying to explain why a God who did have the power let it happen. It's just straightforwardly saying God didn't have the power. And cur- like fill in the blanks for me because I'm not remembering our conversation with Tom perfectly. I believe he thinks that that's the the reason that God doesn't have the power is because of the way God set things up. So we need to have a more careful conversation with him, and I don't want to misrepresent his view. But I think, just given kind of the process theology background that he kind of comes from, or that he is friendly to, that I think he would have to say God is... <laughs> um, God has limited God's self because of human agency is what I want to like kind so of transpose that, that into That would his be belief. kind of a, a version of the free will theodicy. Mm-hmm. That's not quite how I'm understanding Tom. I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm understanding Tom to say something more like God's nature and particularly God's incarnational nature disallows God from being able to stop evil in the physical world. Okay. And how much of that was God's limiting choice on God's self? I'm not clear on that. So that's a, okay. that's we'll a fair question for him. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, that's a different way of approaching this. That has not been, pers- that kind of way has not been persuasive to most philosophers who have thought about this issue because it doesn't seem to a lot of them that we're talking about the same thing anymore. So if you're not omnipotent, you're not God yeah. to those philosophers. Yeah. At, at least not in the in, kind of Anselmian sense of the greatest conceivable being. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that all the religions have taken themselves to be about, to be worshiping, the creator of the world that can do far more than is conceivable to humans, and surely something as simple as making a world with less suffering in it, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think most philosophers would just see that as kind of a, a changing of the subject, sort okay. of, okay. rather than a resolution of the problem. But it is an option, and I want to put it out there, because it's, you know... And he frames it biblically. He, 
Very much, yeah. Mm -hmm. There's another one, and this is called skeptical theism, and this has been kind of popular in philosophy religion in the last, I don't know, decade or two. And this is kind of what you get in Job. That's how I read it. Um, now, you're a pastor, and you know more about Job than I do. I'm sure you've probably preached on it. Um, but when I read Job, I do not see a response to evil so much as I see a um, kind of putting the questioner in their place. Yes. So when jo- when God finally shows up towards the end of that book and, God gets sassy. and speaks, yeah. It's uh, it's interesting. It's maybe not what you would have expected. <laughs> it's pretty fun though. Job doesn't get his answer so much as he gets put in his place. It's hard. It's yeah. hard. How else to say that? Like, where God, were you when yeah. I established the the yeah. the universe? Where were you when I rolled out the yeah. you know the cosmos like a like a carpet? Where were you? Gird yourself like a man, Job, and listen to yeah. me. Let's reason together. Yeah, yeah. Um, Job, who was righteous, and God never denies that. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a who are you to question me? Yeah. Kind of response. You're not God. Uh, and what skeptical theism does is try to drive a wedge into the evidential problem of evil, which we defined last time, and say, you know, that thing that uh, Bill Rowe, the philosopher we talked about, that thing he said where we're surrounded by evidence that God doesn't exist. Is that right? Uh, the, the, the skeptical theist says we should be skeptical of that claim because our ability to conclude what that evidence points to is extraordinarily limited. Mm-hmm. And they have lots of fun thought experiments that I won't bore you with, but essentially it's kind of a, an argument for humility. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the most charitable read of it, yep. I think. Yep. There are other ways to read it too. Um, some influential philosophers read it as ignoring <laughs> certain kinds of powerful evidence that we have in certain instances of suffering. But I think at its best... It's an argument for humility. It's saying we are extraordinarily limited and we simply have no idea what reasons an omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent being might have. Uh, And so concluding anything on the basis of the evidence that seems to be available to us is a bad move. Yeah. On one hand, I think it's not a terrible theodicy. And on the other hand, I think it's silly to suppose that like, moral good you know goodness is more complex than i see it to be Mm. does that make sense like if i see something as being evil or evil or suffering in some large-scale thing it's it's kind of silliness to me to say well there's something beyond that that we can't know because we're finite human beings like i like that humility that epistemic humility but i don't like explaining everything away to say well we can't know and we're not god yeah, it's it's unsatisfying to a lot of folks. I'm one of those folks for sure. It doesn't quite go as far as some, uh, for example, deterministic thinkers yes. have gone. And, and that means people who believe that God ordered the world uh, very intentionally to include all of the suffering that it does include and is causing it all directly to happen. Um, it doesn't go as far as some of those thinkers do in saying that Goodness applied to God and goodness applied to humans are just different concepts. They, they mean different things. And so when something seems evil to me, um, I can't attribute that to God because God is above me. We're entirely different kinds of creatures and the words just don't mean the same thing. Um, the skeptical theist doesn't go that far, but they do uh, caution drawing any conclusions about mm-hmm. God's goodness on the basis of how suffering seems to me. Yep. And, you know, 
that's persuasive in some ways, but I also like you find it pretty unsatisfying, especially when we run up against specific instances of suffering that sure seems like could have been avoided. Well, it does. It just doesn't take a genius to see and recognize evil. And it doesn't take a genius to see and recognize goodness. That's where I'm, I'm just like, yeah. And this is where those intuitions I talked about come into play. Like given an example, like that fawn example or any, a number of other examples we could raise. That sure seems like evidence to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I know that's not a good argument. It's not any kind of argument at all. It's just how it strikes me, mm-hmm. you know? And I think all philosophical arguments ultimately come back to how things strike you. And uh, yeah, it sure seems to me that certain instances of suffering are gratuitous. And I don't know how to get around that. I can tell myself I need to be humble about that and be careful about the conclusions I draw. But man, you start thinking about it carefully and you're bombarded with examples. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, when it's met with real life, yeah. there's problems there. Yeah. Did you, I don't think you talked about defeating evil. The I've not. So that's, right. that's kind of where I wanted to, to bring us to. Um, so we recently spoke with Keith DeRose, who has his own kind of version. And, and he and Keith DeRose is a philosopher at Yale University. Right. He's pretty brilliant. Yeah, writing a book on the problem of evil. Um, and he has this in common with, kind of developed it in conversations with a philosopher I've referenced before named Marilyn Adams, who's no longer with us. And they kind of have a view, he calls it defeating, um, that it's kind of a theodicy, but it's also a little bit different because the way he described it to us is, most theodicies are trying to counterbalance evil. It's that greater good thing, right? We've got mm-hmm. evil on one side, it's really dark and bad, but we've got so much good on the other side that ultimately it outweighs it and justifies the whole thing. He's saying that's not satisfying. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're going to have any kind of convincing theodicy, it can't just counterbalance the evil, it has to defeat it. Yes. And what he means by that is, as I understand it anyway, make it such that it was good that it happened mm-hmm. and that the evil itself... It's hard to think of words that aren't just synonyms for defeat. It's somehow overcome in a way that makes it like, I don't know, the only the thing God should have done, right? So, um, and, and maybe the clearest picture of this is the crucifixion um, for the Christian anyway. So there's a sense in which, I mean, that is obviously how Christians have defined themselves. It's the genesis of our religion. And it's awful. Mm-hmm. And it's also good mm-hmm. and beautiful simultaneously. And you you can't have the one without the other. Like you, if it wasn't as awful and depraved as it was, it wouldn't play the role that it has to play religiously. Mm-hmm. And something analogous to that has to be the case for any kind of theodicy with, with respect to every instance of evil. Mm-hmm. It has to, in some sense, mirror that kind of interplay between goodness and suffering. Hmm. It's very difficult to flesh out. I don't pretend to understand it well. I'm very much looking forward to reading his book about it. But he, they're not alone in taking that kind of view. There are other thinkers, somewhat more mystical thinkers usually, who um, think that there's a kind of divine intimacy in suffering um, that partially justifies it or serves a role in helping us to understand it at mm-hmm, least, mm-hmm. that we can partake in the suffering of Christ. And that's somehow central to Christian experience. Yeah, Yeah, I don't pretend to understand those claims, but they're different from the other kinds of theodicies. Yeah, I would say those are similar to where I land. Mm. I'll say where I land in a few minutes. Okay, good. So let me say one more thing, and then we can come back to that, because that sounds a lot more hopeful than what I'm about to say. (laughs) (laughs) So where I I end this, and this is always the part of class, you know, when I'm teaching intro philosophy, that I have the hardest time getting through. Lower the lights. (laughs) Yes. 
Um, so I have my students uh, read some fiction, actually, because um, they've been reading all this analytical philosophy, and it's difficult to feel emotionally when you're trying to understand a rigorous argument. And so I have them read some fiction that I think is really effectively put, you know, this view into the right kind of context that you need in assessing whether a theodicy has been effective or not. It can't just be rationally satisfying. It has to, I think, be emotionally and spiritually satisfying. Um, And so one of the reasons none of them are for me is because of the way certain authors have have put the case. Um, So I'll just recommend for you a couple. There have been a bunch, but uh, in particular, the most famous one is uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky in his book, The Brothers Karamazov. He has a chapter, uh, maybe first third of the book or so, you don't have to read too far to get to it, um, where a character gives a version of the problem of evil that is extraordinarily powerful and has become famous. Um, philosophers and theologians mm-hmm. reference it all the time. Um, and it's, it's an interesting version because it's taking square aim at the greater good idea, just cutting right to the quick of all these theodicies and saying, let's imagine what it would be like if that was true, if that was right, would it be satisfying? Would it be satisfactory? And would it, in particular, justify the choice to worship that being, to continue being religious, in other words? Um, and Dostoevsky's character, his name is Ivan, concludes with what he calls a kind of rebellion, that's the word he uses, um, where he claims to not disbelieve So the outcome of the problem of evil for him is not atheism, it's rebellion. Uh, And he means, and it's it's difficult to convey the the view without using specific examples, but I don't want to do that because I promised I wouldn't. (laughs) Um, But it's an extraordinarily difficult piece to read because he uses lots and lots of examples of children suffering specifically. Mostly fictional, but enough that are real enough that you know they've happened. And when confronted with those specific examples, his case is extraordinarily compelling because what he says is take this one instance that I've just described in graphic detail and imagine you're God and that your goal is to make humans happy and blissful in the end. And that's all true and real. And that's what the greater good theodicy says, but that the cost of it was the suffering of this child. Would you consent to that? And the character he's talking to has to admit, no, <laughs> of course I wouldn't because I'm a good person. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, and there have been lots of literary examples of this. Another good one is um, one of my favorite science fiction writers, Ursula Le Guin. She has a, a wonderful little short story called The Ones Who Walk Away from Homeless. It'll take you 10 minutes to read it, max. I don't want to give away the ending, but it's a very similar kind of thing. If perpetual bliss is built on the edifice of innocent suffering, even if it's just the suffering of one, there's something deep in our like humanity that wants to rebel against that, to say it's not worth it, mm-hmm. even if true. Uh, and so that's kind of where I try to leave my students wriggling in that. And I think that there's, there's an interesting thing that happens in that Dostoevsky book, because the very next chapter is the most devout Christian in the book, trying to come to terms with it. Hmm. And Yvonne tells another story called the grand inquisitor. That's just like this brilliant parable about Jesus coming back to earth and meeting an inquisitor in the, the midst of the inquisition. 
um, and they have a really interesting interaction. Um, but it like it puts the focus squarely on what what could the Christian response to this possibly be? Is there one? And it has to if there is one, it has to incorporate divine suffering. It has to in some way. God is a party to it. God, mm-hmm. God is not the one behind it Inflicting who then has it. to justify it. Mm-hmm. God is is in it. God mm-hmm. is the one suffering. Yep. And our suffering might even be an extension of God's suffering in some way. Um, and so this is kind of where Keith landed too when we talked to him. It's like, it's hard to explain, but the only compelling version of Christianity seems to be one where God died mm-hmm. <laughs> horribly. And how that helps i'm not sure but it does somehow seem to help <laughs> i think so i think so so this is the point where i say help me <laughs> figure this out because <laughs> i'm i'm very much psychologically and um intellectually in the kind of dostoevsky space i don't i don't find any of the theodicies compelling when they're stacked against individual instances of innocent suffering and in fact i think a being who constructed it that way is immoral mm. i don't see any way around that um, and yet, I'm still a Christian, <laughs> and, and part of the reason for that has to be that God is somehow in it with me, mm-hmm. and I don't understand that. Friends, before we continue, we want to thank Storyhill BKC for their support. Storyhill BKC is a full-menu restaurant, and their food is seriously some of the best in Milwaukee. On top of that, Storyhill BKC is a full-service liquor store featuring growlers of tap available to go, spirits, especially whiskeys and bourbons, thoughtfully curated regional craft beers, and 375 selections of wine. Visit StoryhillBKC.com for menu and more info. If you're in Milwaukee, you'll thank yourself for visiting Storyhill BKC, and if you're not, remember to support local. One more time, that's StoryhillBKC.com. For me, there's a couple of things, and they've all been hinted at, I think, mostly. But this idea of kenosis, um, the self-emptying of God, and the clearest picture in scriptures that we get that is Philippians 2, where Paul is using Jesus as an example to be for us to be like-minded and of one heart, one purpose, one mind, all that stuff. But he says, take, take the posture of Christ, and I'm paraphrasing here. He says, take the posture of Christ, which Christ was... God himself, God equal with God, and chose to give all of all of what that meant away and to just empty himself of that and to be, you know, created human being and be a servant and be and suffer and die and give up everything that, that Jesus had. And in doing so God glorified him and that in every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, it, it winds up. But it's this kind of idea of God emptying God's self of all of God's self and identifying with the suffering of of the world and taking all of the violence and all of the oppression and all of the hatred and all of the bitterness and all of everything, all of the evil that the world could throw at God and God absorbing it. And for me, that does a couple of things. It's that notion of incarnation that God doesn't... Um, wave a magic wand and make all the suffering disappear, God actually enters into our suffering. And in doing so, perhaps, at the very least, God identifies with our own suffering and perhaps enters into it with us. And in that way, in some really mysterious way, 
kind of makes sense of it. Hmm. If God has entered into my suffering, if God has entered into the darkest, most evil, violent, depraved suffering, could God redeem that suffering then if, it, if he's absorbed it all? Mm-hmm. I think it's part of the mystery of the incarnation and part of the mystery of the cross that God perhaps cosmically solved the problem of evil by suffering under it mm-hmm. to the fullest extent that God could. I think that's there's something poetic and beautiful and uh, mysterious about that. I don't think it's satisfactory, right. but I think there's something to the idea of, you know, that's, we, I said in the DeRosa episode of that famous thing of being in a concentration camp and seeing mm-hmm. this little boy hanging in the gallows and this man getting justifiably pissed and angry at God and saying, where is God? Where is God right now? I don't see God anywhere. And this little boy is hanging from the gallows that these awful Nazis did this to him. And somebody says, God's hanging on the gallows with him. Mm-hmm. Where's God? Um I don't know how to explain that, but there's something in it that is like one of the most comforting thoughts I could ever think of. Yeah. And that that's the essence of Christianity. I mean, God looks like crucifixion. It's kind of the whole thing. And it's this inversion of values that is difficult to comprehend, right. especially for a kind of um, enlightenment, <laughs> rational or post-enlightenment. Right. Right. You know, person who thinks things like evidence and reason are really important and their clear senses towards like power. Um, because if that's what divine power looks like, absorbing suffering non retaliatorily, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, yeah, which you know, being a pacifist com- really is compelling to right. me. Um, but it is. It's just totally foreign yep. to how we've set up the question, kind of completely. Which intrigues me a little bit, you yeah. know, like that the way to end suffering is to head straight through it, perhaps, and mm-hmm. to redeem it from the inside out. And then, so that's not all for me, but that's 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 a that's a major part of my, I would say, not my theodicy, but my um, answer to suffering is to say God is a God who suffers with and yeah. God is, is a God who suffers. That, that's nonsensical, but it's beautiful at the same time. Yeah. And then when, when we think of, um, there's themes of judgment throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament. And when we think of judgment, we think of God smiting, angrily and vengefully smiting sinners. And maybe because I'm not an oppressed person, there's something really powerful and essential to that picture. That like, God will make this right by making those oppressors suffer. Mm-hmm. But N.T. Wright would say that when we see judgment, particularly in the New Testament, it's not this picture of an angry God with firebolts throwing down from heaven at all the dirty, rotten sinners. It's actually this idea, and I've said this before, of God setting the world to rights. Mm-hmm. Um, when Jesus in John 12 set, is talking about his crucifixion, and he says, um, now is the time of judgment for this world. Now is the time for me to cast out the prince of this world. And when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Mm-hmm. And we think what Jesus was saying is that now is the time for me to set the world to rights. That all of this, all of this stuff, Bambi dying over and over again, and you know, I would say even more profoundly, like children dying and children watching their their parents that go through it all. Um, that judgment of this world looks like 
God in Christ, setting all things to right. And then you get this picture of the book of Revelation, and I've said this before in our conversation about ultimate reconciliation, where you have this vision of of Jesus in Revelation 19, where Jesus shows up and he's on a horse and he's dazzling white and his name is faithful and true and he's his eyes are blazing and his robe is dipped in blood and he has a sword coming out of his mouth and he wages war and on the nations it says and he just slays all of God's enemies and then all of a sudden you get this beautiful picture of you know the new heavens and the new earth after the Satan is thrown into the lake of fire all the things and that's a really violent picture. Mm-hmm. It's a very symbolically and metaphorically terribly violent picture that's disturbing if you take it on face value. But we shouldn't take any of Revelation on face value. Or <laughs> literally, you get into a lot of trouble and people have throughout the centuries. But I think what good theologians say is that that's a picture of Jesus judging evil. That's a picture of Jesus judging all that has set itself up against the divine love of God. That's a picture of Jesus saying... Now is time to right all the wrongs. Now is time to set the world to rights because I can't, we can't have new creation without me judging the world and all the evil that has gone on. And so that's a picture, this, this kind of cosmic, spiritual, symbolic, metaphorical picture that helps me a little bit maybe grasp how God might make things right. And that is that I have to believe that in order for me to have hope in eternity, in order for me to have hope in a resurrection or new creation, that that means that this little girl in Africa who died at the age of six and she was endured female circumcision, and I'm not even going to name all the things that those little girls endure, you know, all around the world, that Jesus sees it and is going to make it right somehow. And that Revelation 19 gives us this metaphorical, symbolic, weird, but like very perhaps even concrete picture of Jesus is going to destroy the evil that is that has wreaked havoc on God's good creation. Is what I'm saying making sense? Yeah, <clears throat> I think so. <laughs> but it, it might just be because I've been so immersed in Christian imagery right. for so long that I'm primed for it to make sense. Sure. So part of my difficulty with this kind of... Uh, I don't know, defeat response or mm-hmm. kenosis kind of response, whatever you want to call it, which I really do find compelling, right? It, I agree with Keith. It's the only kind of uh, religious perspective that like, could possibly be compelling to me. It has to include somehow God's suffering along with us. Mm-hmm. That, makes a di- that makes a real difference. But it's man, it's hard to understand why, and it's difficult for me to step out of my uh, metaphorical and... Um, I just, everything I've experienced within the religion, like it's been my whole life. And so everything that I've been taught has been pointing at that kind of paradigm. And so it's hard for me to know if it makes sense because I've been enculturated to it or if it really makes sense, Mm -hmm. if it really helps. Mm -hmm. Because when I try to step out of it a little bit, (laughs) do that bracketing exercise and ask myself, how does this help? I I confess I come up a little short. It almost doesn't even seem meaningful, the kind of thing that Keith is talking about, about Mm. defeat. How could, and again, I'm trying to avoid using too explicit of imagery, but like one of those cases like you just talked about, how could that specific moment of suffering be defeated by God participating in it. Does that really help? <laughs> I, I think that's the participation of God in our suffering helps, but it doesn't solve it, for, certainly. Right. But I do think this idea of 
God in Christ judging mm-hmm. evil. And that means something, yeah. I think, like, I don't want to say um, metaphysical, but it's like um, something that really, truly does set evil to right, yeah. that redeems so things my, for... my fear yeah. <laughs> about that. It's that if we, if we go in that direction, we might have to go all the way to... If, if, if divine power looks like absorbing suffering then at what point does the setting to right seem like the likely outcome um, rather than just continually absorbing the suffering? <laughs> it, it, it's kind of the problem I had with Tom's view a little bit is when we talked to him, we kind of came back to, do you really think that, like, can we really legitimately have good reason to believe this is all going to come out well? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and I, he admitted the answer was probably not. You can have hope for it, but you can't really have a conviction that God's going to overcome this. And so I guess that's my fear with going in that direction. Um, I don't I don't like slippery slope arguments, but, but it right. seems a little bit like if I open the door to some kind of divine participation in the suffering is the only path to the eradication of evil or the, I don't know, justification is not the right word, the defeat the overcoming the even just the making sense of evil maybe the more likely outcome is that we just don't have a being who can actually fix it anymore and god is suffering along with us because god is loving and compassionate and that's what a good god would do who didn't know how to fix it yeah yeah no i think that's certainly like something that we should hold hold space for but i would say that's why I'm a person of faith. That's why I hold to hope. That's why I believe in the narrative of the scriptures that shows this grand theme and grand narrative that um, God's good creation went wrong. And I'm not going to go into all the reasons why it went wrong. And God God is not willing to settle for that. And so that's, to me, the grand narrative of the scriptures is how God is going to set the world to rights. What is God going to do with his good creation gone wrong? And I think that's where the book of Revelation comes in handy for me and what these atonement theories come in handy and the the mystery and the profundity of the cross and the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the foolishness of it even in some ways, as Paul would say, that's where for me, I still choose in, in light of this conversation, in light of the, th- of the theodicies, in light of the, the great evil that I don't want to ignore, I choose to believe that God is going to make things right for all all things and all people, mm-hmm. and that um, every shred of matter that exists is going to be redeemed and renewed and, and enter into life. Right. Like, I choose to believe that. I choose to believe that evil is not the, the ultimate force in the universe that will win. I choose to believe that, and I be, and, but I, I choose to believe that God in his goodness and God in God's love and compassion and kindness and goodness and patience is this thing is going somewhere good. I choose to believe it. And it's not evidential, but at the same time, this is where I get like really spiritual. (laughs) I feel like this stuff that I'm talking about is written into the human heart Mm. is, is somehow like there's something that like we're all kind of rooting for. And I don't know if it's not evidential, but it's for me 
pers- yeah. persuasive. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Yeah, and it it jives with my feelings about it too. Um, I think that's the right word, feelings. Yeah, because <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, which is really awkward for a philosopher yeah, to say, I'm l- sure, a little bit. Yeah, um, but I do. Th- this is kind of where, at least for me, we have come nowhere near to exhausting the no. intellectual side of this problem, and we want to talk to people who are actually specialists in the future. But for me, it this is kind of where this way of approaching the problem runs its course. A little bit of intellectualizing it and trying to assess arguments right mm-hmm. that can only get you so far and it's just not satisfying to me past kind of the point that we've gotten to and i don't i, I think the next step for me personally from here is a kind of liturgy mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a it's a participation in a community mm-hmm. um, that is bigger than me is older than me has forms that are meaningful despite my doubts or orientation toward them at the moment and it's i I participate in something regardless of my understanding of it regardless of my beliefs about it and it that goes a lot further towards helping me to believe it weirdly giving me hope making me less angry (laughs) because this issue creates a lot of anger and when i contemplate it especially the dostoevsky kind of thing right there's a a kind of bitterness in that Mm -hmm. that is honest and I feel it and I think it's important to express it, but it also feels right and like a corrective to that when I worship with other Christians in spite of it anyway. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a tension that I can't explain and yet it's real. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wanted to end us on a place that was honest. <laughs> yeah, so. no, and I think it's why within Christianity I'm starting to enjoy some of the Eucharistic tradition mm-hmm. in Christianity where we're centered around the table of Christ, which is this, you know, real, I believe, mysterious presence of Christ with us, and also symbolically inviting us to live into and to imagine even a reality that is more and better than this. Mm -hmm. And I think that was inaugurated in the incarnation and crucifixion and resurrection and ascension of Jesus um, that says there's something more the seeds of the that more have been planted and they're taking root. And this is where I like that um, soul-building mm-hmm. theodicy, mm-hmm. which is we're moving towards it all the time, and our call is to root ourselves in Christ and in community where we can see hints of that all over the place and where we can be carriers of that new creation. Yeah. Um, I know that this is going to make all the philosophers listening to us just <laughs> completely unsatisfied. Yeah, but that's kind of my point is there's something beyond the dissatisfaction or there's something that subsu- that can subsume the dissatisfaction that, you know, it's optional. Um, it's totally mm-hmm. rational to reject that and not go mm-hmm. there and I get that and I'm, I have those moods. Um, <laughs> but, but at the same time, um, we don't have to we don't have sufficient justification for the view that we should just stop in the dissatisfaction either. Like the, this is one of those situations where I think we're evidentially um, kind of at an equilibrium and you yep. can, you can make a legitimate choice here. And so the choice I make is to participate in a, a larger community that, you know, it's when you're in that kind of thing, it's, it's impossible to not to deny the deep goodness in the world. And there's maybe no better theodicy or I mean, maybe not a theodicy, just a corrective or a whatever you want to call it for focusing a lot on suffering than to just focus on some really good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember one of my friend's kids when he was really young, 
as you know kids say silly things and um they're just having a good day and he said daddy there are a lot of good days aren't there so yep that's <laughs> that's maybe the best kind of theodicy that there is mm-hmm. you know it's not it's not so simplistic as a really good day will counterbalance all the bad ones or justify their existence or anything like that but in a situation where we just simply don't have an answer and i think that's where we are here uh, and we have some suggestive metaphors like you know crucifixion or incarnation or whatever i think it's totally rational and healthy to focus on the goodness and to let it be healing Hmm. to let it play that kind of role yes and that happens best in my experience in a, a community yep amen Thanks for listening to A Pastor and a Philosopher Walking to a Bar. We hope you're enjoying these conversations. Help us continue to create compelling content and reach a wider audience by supporting us at patreon.com slash a pastor and a philosopher, where you can get bonus content, extra perks, and a general feeling of being a good person. Also, please rate and review the show in Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. These help new people discover the show, and we may even read your review in a future episode. If anything we said pissed you off, or if you just have a question you'd like us to answer, send us an email at pastorandphilosopher at gmail.com. Find us on social media at, at PPWB Podcast and find transcripts and links to all of our episodes at pastorandphilosopher.buzzsprout.com. See you next time. Cheers. <laughs>